Welcome. Glad that you're here and hope that you feel safe, that you feel welcome to experience something of Jesus presence with us. Some of those of you who know me uh, well, you know that I love nature. I love being outside. I love being in the woods. Um, a fly fisherman. And uh, this week I got to learn about giant redwood trees. And I've never been out to California to see them. Who has been out to California to see redwood trees? Many of you. So you know, you've seen, you've driven through the trunk perhaps and these trees are just magnificent, so I'm told. I've only seen pictures. Maybe Sarah and I will have to get out there. But what a lot of folks, myself included, would probably assume is that a tree that would be, you know, 350 feet tall and just massive at the trunk would have this deep root system, you know, that just goes down, 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 and keeps that tree, everything on top of the surface, uh, stable and steady during inclement weather or throughout the years. But you'd be wrong if you were to think that. In fact, the giant redwood trees don't uh, have a, a deep root system at all. They don't even have a taproot. Uh, the taproot is, uh, I'm not a botanist or biologist by any means, but the taproot is the anchor, you know, that holds these trees in place. And giant redwood trees do not have that. In fact, their roots don't even go, you know, deeper than six to ten feet. So how is that possible? What, what is happening there? Well, giant redwood trees' roots do not extend deep into the soil, but they do extend wide. They don't, they don't go past 6 to 10 feet, but what they do, what giant redwood trees' root systems do, is they interlock with the different redwood trees' root systems in the forest. And throughout the forest, that's how these trees stay upright through all kinds of weather and throughout all, all stages of the tree's life, that's how the trees, you know, stay stable and that's how they stay connected is that it's an interlocking system of roots. And as I learned about redwoods this week, I felt like, gosh, what a picture of fellowship. What a picture of what the church is to be. You know, you, you might have heard before, some people might refer to uh, a specific individual in a church as like an oak of righteousness, or this person is a pillar in the church, or what have you, but that's just not who the church is called to be. We're all called to bring and usher life to those around us, each one of us, showing up and showing faithfulness and moving the ball forward one yard at a time. There are no superstars in the church. In the vineyard, we say that everybody gets to play, and, and we mean it. It's not the man of God or the woman of God in the middle, the charismatic figure, you know, through whom all miraculous signs must come. It's each one of us showing up in everyday ordinary moments and asking our Father, what are you doing? What are you up to? And we get to see the kingdom of God come. Well, we've been discussing vineyard distinctives 
um, over the past weeks and discussing and revisiting Vineyard values. What does it mean to be part of a vineyard church? What does it mean to, um, to be part of a wider family, which we're involved in? I don't know if you know this or not, but we're not an island, Vineyard Cleveland. We belong to a larger family called the Vineyard. And it's been great. Ben shared on Everybody Gets to Play, and Tom shared on Compassionate Ministry. We talked about authentic worship. We talked about the kingdom of God and the theology and practice of the kingdom of God and how that colors everything that we do and informs everything that we do here at the Vineyard. And today, uh, last week, we talked about uh, come Holy Spirit. How, How are the different ways we say come Holy Spirit? And Tom and I shared some stories from Africa. And as we were on the plane uh, coming back from Africa, we thought, uh, wouldn't it be great to just kind of park there for a minute and chat about the Holy Spirit? And not just chat about the, the Holy Spirit, but experience. We've come here for encounter. At the Vineyard, we believe more, it's more and more, and increasingly so as we move through our days, it's more and more about encounter and less and less about head knowledge and more and more about heart encounter. So we figured, um, you know, this Sunday is Pentecost. We celebrate Pentecost on church calendar. And so today, why not park here at the Holy Spirit and just chat about Holy Spirit and invite His presence. Wasn't worship uh, amazing this morning just to welcome the presence of God? You know, just to say you're welcome here, Holy Spirit, and the guys leading us in there so well. I mean, that's what we've come here for. We've come here for encounter, not just to discuss someone like he's not here, he's not present, but God truly comes. He's enthroned on the praises of his people and where two or more are gathered, he is there also. So he comes and he, he walks the rows this morning and he's, he's searching for hearts. He's, he's searching and calling hearts to, to come back home and to draw near to himself and to show, show us that he's for us, he's not against us. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to we welcome his presence and discuss what does it mean to say, come Holy Spirit. So whatever you want to call this talk, whether it's like, come Holy Spirit, or whether it's the Holy Spirit's church, or Holy Spirit, we love you, or Holy Spirit, you're the best, or whatever clever title you want to give this talk, that's what it is. So... Let's, um, let's pray and um, invite God's presence, and we'll dig in a little bit. So Jesus, I, I welcome your presence. We together say, come Holy Spirit. As a body, as a family, we welcome your presence, Jesus, and we just uh, invite you to do whatever it is that you want to do this morning. Not our agenda, God. Our, your presence is our highest agenda this morning. We say, come. Come have your way. We thank you, God, for the gift of your presence. And we thank you for the gift of community. Just what a blessing it is to to live life together and to do life together. Come and have your way. Let your rule and your reign be established here in greater Cleveland. Here in Cleveland, as in heaven. Come, Lord. Come, come, Father, come, come reveal Jesus to us in greater depth and greater measure.
We pray this in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Acts 2 this morning. If you wanted to turn there or swipe there with me. And the context is Pentecost. The apostles are gathered in a room and Jesus has told them to wait. He says, wait together. And we talked about last week, we said there in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, we saw when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and how significant that is, they weren't, what, what Luke is trying to say here is that they, they weren't just together in one place geographically. They were together. The apostles were waiting together. They were saying yes to Jesus together in the context of community. They were together in, in heart and together in mind and in mission and in obedience. They were saying yes together. Community. So here we are in chapter 2, and Peter addresses the crowd because the Holy Spirit falls on these guys, and it's something like a violent wind, the scriptures say. Luke says it's something like a wind that comes upon them, and they begin to speak in different languages, and everybody in Jerusalem thinks that they're booze hounds. These guys are drunk, and then Peter says they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning, and he gives the sermon, and 3,000 people come to put their faith in Jesus that day. 3,000 people, not 3,000 Israelites, per se, from Jerusalem. 3,000 people from all over who have come to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. People of different cultures. This is great. This is like sometimes a missing piece when we talk about Pentecost. People from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people from different ethnicities are all gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And Luke writes that 3,000 come to put their faith in Jesus in that, in that day. People from all over, crossing different backgrounds. Right off, the, right off the bat, Jesus is saying, I love diversity in my church. Right off the bat. That's amazing. That one was free. Okay, 42, we read this in verse 42. They devoted themselves. Who? Verse 41, those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I love that one. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is encouraging for us. I don't know about you, but as you read through this, I, as I read through it, I feel encouraged. I feel like, gosh, Jesus, what your church could look like. 
What, what, this is what it looked like in the beginning, what it could look like in the future. This is amazing. And it's also challenging to us as well because we look around and we see the reality that maybe our churches in America, maybe this church, we don't look like. We don't look like that. Maybe we're not quite together and have everything in common. We see that we, we love ourselves more than we love others. That often we don't live lives full of wonder and awe. Although it's different this morning. This morning I was in wonder that it was snowing in May. That's helping me live a life full of wonder, but oftentimes we don't. You know, we're simply going through our days in a sense of drudgery. Simply trying to get through the day so we can just complain about the next day tomorrow. That's the reality of it. Many times we don't have glad hearts. We don't follow Jesus in sincerity. If we were really honest, we lack sincerity in following Jesus. We say one thing with our mouths and then our actions don't line up with the words that we speak. And that's a challenge to all of us. I'm preaching to myself as well. We see that we fall short. We, we look inside and we look inside for a resource to, to change the culture around us and we come up empty-handed. We say, I know what's in there. Save, save the people of, of Africa, uh, the people of Cleveland. I can't even save myself. I look in there and I say, I can't even save myself. I lack resource to change. I can't change myself, let alone the culture around me. How am I supposed to do that? We look into our own hearts and we see that we're not full of gladness. And, and on our more honest days, we say, you know, I'm a good person. I've, I've got things together. But yet we lead lonely lives and, and being good enough doesn't measure up. Even our best deeds, even our most pure motivations and intentions fall short of what God requires. So how do, how do we reconcile this? How do we put this in perspective? Who we're becoming as a church? Who, who we're becoming in this city? Well, the solution is in a person. It's not in some clever marketing strategy. It's not in, in some dogma or dry doctrine. It's in a person. And the person's name is Jesus. Specifically, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwelling in us as resource to shift culture around us. This is His church. This is the Holy Spirit's church. He's, he's commanding the destinies of every one of our hearts this morning. He's the one who's mapping out plans for our lives. He's the power source. He's the resource that we need to bring life to the city of Cleveland. He's the love that we've been waiting for. He's the light switch that's waiting to be flipped on. It's his power in our lives that we need to become the church he envisions us to be. And right off the bat, we see that they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's a tough one for me to hear. I don't know about for you, my rebel heart. This is a tough one for me to hear. It's a challenging one for me to hear to devote myself to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? 
Well, in that I hear that there's a willingness to listen to others' perspectives. There's a willingness to grow and to learn from one another. How, how difficult it is to listen in today's culture, in today's society. Everyone's screaming, everyone's talking. Talk, 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 talk. It's impossible to listen. It's impossible to hear while everyone is talking. There's so much talking going on in our society. We live in a society that says, well, whatever you believe is fine. There is no right. There is no wrong. We live in an increasingly beyond pluralistic society. Live and let live. Whatever you believe is fine. Competing voices challenge your affections. It's difficult. You might hear in your everyday situation that it's even arrogant. It's arrogant. How could you say that there is only one voice to listen to? How could you, how could you really believe? How arrogant of you to believe that there's just one way, that there's one truth, that there's one life? That's arrogance. How could you believe that? You might hear that at your workplace or in your family. You might have experienced pushback for that. What do you do with that? What do we do with that? You might even believe it's, it's, it's like that in the church even. It's difficult to, to focus on one voice, isn't it? We want to hear from from this man of God or, or this woman of God who's anointed right now and who everyone seems to be listening to right now. And there might not be anything wrong with that inherently, but what does it mean to learn from one another at a local church level? To trust leadership in one another? To be devoted to sound teaching locally? Well, who are the apostles teaching? Who are they teaching? They're teaching Jesus risen from the grave. The Holy Spirit is just being poured out. They're teaching the filling of the Holy Spirit in a people. The miracle of Pentecost is who God was creating. He was creating a people that were devoted to a person, not a set of rules. The teaching is a person. The content of the teaching is a person. That is revolutionary. Never before on the face of planet Earth has that happened. And the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, shifts everything upside down. They're devoting themselves to a person. God was not instituting a new religion. He was not setting into place a new organization or strategizing for that. He was creating a people who would be devoted to his son. A people who were devoted to hanging on every word that his son said. He was creating a people that were devoted to hope. Everything that Jesus spoke. Everything that Jesus spoke. The, the kingdom Jesus inaugurated would be ushered in more fully by the people he called. A people devoted to seeing the impossible things take shape. He was creating a people who believed that death didn't have the final word. He was creating a people who believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. That's what the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost. And that's what he's still doing today. He's creating a people who devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching. The early believers didn't see themselves as a group of individuals, as we Americans do. The early believers didn't see themselves as a group of individuals picking and choosing which one of Jesus' teachings they liked and disliked, accepting and dismissing. That should ruffle a few feathers this morning. I know it does mine. They surrendered themselves fully in heart and in mind to the apostles' teaching. Fully. They didn't just say, oh, it's great. Look at this thing that Jesus said over here. Love your neighbor as yourself. Golden rule. I'm all in. That's great. But then choose over this one over here that says, when you've looked lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Throw that one out. That's a tough one. I don't know what to do with this one. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. What the heck are you talking about? Love your neighbor as yourself. I'll stay put over here. That's really comfy. You see, the early uh, uh, apostles and the early believers weren't like that. They committed themselves fully to the teaching of the apostles. Fully. They said yes. They were saying yes. And the reason why they did that is because they knew they were saying yes to a, a person, not a doctrine. Amen. And look at evidence of this. In verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Here it comes. This is is pouring out. This is like happening in their midst. In the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Holy Spirit's no respecter of persons. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Don't give up, old men. We need you to dream big dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Women in a matriarchal society like Cleveland, we need you. Don't give up. And they will prophesy. We need you to prophesy over the city, women of God. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Should I continue? David said about him, I saw the Lord always Always before me because he is at my right hand, I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my, my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with your joy in your presence. Presence is the key. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and their, uh, the apostles' teaching was what? Presence. 
in the person of Jesus, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, not just dogma, not just doctrine, personhood, Jesus. The content of the apostles' teaching is Jesus. We read on. They were devoted to one another. Right there in 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to what? To fellowship. This early community of people devoted themselves to fellowship. What does this mean? It means that we don't just live in a highly pluralistic society. We also live in a highly narcissistic and individualistic society iPod, iPhone, i this, i this, i that. You can even go to the app store this morning if you would like, and you can find a game, an app game that's uh, called Pocket God. I know it's just fun, and it's a game on the app store, but it's very telling about our culture. It's suitable for children four years and up. You can be your own God and reign over a village of uh, people. And you decide when to bless them and when to curse them. When to give blessing, when to withhold blessing. It's pocket God and it's available for free on the app store. You are your own God in this society. You don't need me to tell you that. It's increasingly narcissistic if you look around. Selfie this, selfie that. You are, you decide, you think. Now, we think, sociologists tell us differently, but you think you have more choice than you actually do, that, you, that, that who, who you marry is your choice, that who, that who you decide to hang out with, what job you get. We love, as Americans, to say that we are self-made men and women. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, we did it, we did it. And we forget the shoulders that we're standing on beneath of our feet. But the truth is, is that we are not self-made men and women. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. We are nothing more than to, to be grateful for the blessings that are entrusted into our lives. We didn't become what we are because of some self-effort or putting our nose to the grindstone and just working harder. The culture will tell you differently, but it's a lie. Don't believe them for an instant. Any sort of goodness in your life is a direct result of God giving you blessing in your life. The favor of God on your life. So the, the way to be countercultural is to give your life in service to others. Is to, like Luke writes in Acts, to devote yourself fully to fellowship. Now, Here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about showing up on a Sunday and asking the person next to you, hey, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing today? Did you have a good week or a bad week? I had a good week, bad week. Buzzer sounds, end of discussion. I'm talking about fellowship. Devoting yourself to a shared experience of life with a small group of people on a regular basis. Not simply to gather in order to talk about the weather. But to give yourself to knowing others' joys and struggles. And having your struggles and joys being known by others. It's the most countercultural thing that you can do. You are not on the throne of your life. You are not God of your life. You actually listen 
to the counsel of others in your life and trust that they may, they may know better for you than you would know for yourself. You do not know what's best for you. I don't know what's best for me. If I was honest, if we were honest with one another, you would agree that you don't know what's best for you. How can you tell what's around the corner? That's why life is best lived in the context of fellowship. When we get to hear from one another. In fact, the Greek term is koinonia. Koinonia has lots to do with sharing. Sharing. There's a challenge for us in this as Jesus Church. We teach our children, share your toys. Share your toys. But it seems to be us adults need to be the one taught a lesson about sharing. To fly counter to the culture around us, we bring life to the city by being devoted to one another in fellowship and sharing. This means we sacrifice for one another. We give up our own rights. We protect the weakest and the most vulnerable in our community. We are in the corner of the helpless and the hopeless. That's who we advocate for. Social Darwinism tells us the opposite, that the strong survive and that the strong will make it through. We say no. We agree with Jesus on this one. We stand with the weak. We stand with the vulnerable and we advocate for the vulnerable. That's who we stand up for because that's whose corner Jesus is in. We have one another's backs in leadership. We don't gossip about one another. We choose to commit ourselves to fellowship, sharing, brothers and sisters, literally means sharing, sharing childcare, sharing meals, sharing problems, sharing resources. That's how they'll know. That's the mark. They'll know we're Christians by our love, by the way that we listen to the elderly in our community. They'll know we're Christians by our love. How will they know something is different in Cleveland? How, they'll know, how will they know that something different is happening with the people of Vineyard Cleveland? They'll know by the way we welcome the outsider and the refugee into our fellowship. They'll know by our love. They'll know we're Christians by our love, by the way we provide meals for those of our folks who have had a surgery by our love. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And they didn't just share relationship. They shared money with each other. Ouch. Did you just feel the gasp in the room? Preacher's going to talk about money now. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. I'm in trouble. I can feel your eyes upon me. Preacher, don't talk about money. Okay. In verse 44. In 40, <laughs> okay. On we go. In verse 44 and 45, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. We can talk about it, marked by generosity, or we can do it. So who's got 10 bucks? Okay, bring it. You've got 10 bucks too. Okay, who needs 10 bucks? Who needs $10? You do. Who's got 10 bucks? Here, bring it. Come on. You need 10 bucks? Okay. Who has 10 bucks? You have it? Are you going to give that one? Sherry? Yeah. Who has $10? Who needs $10? Who needs it? Who needs $10? Yeah. 
There it is right there. It didn't even need to go through my hands. Bam, lesson. You need 10 bucks? You've got 10 bucks? Here. Here you go. Who else? Who has 10 bucks? Who needs 10 bucks? I'm walking all around. Yeah, who needs 10 bucks? Who needs 10 bucks? You need 10 bucks? Who else has it? Who needs it? You need it? Here's 10 bucks. Who's having car problems? Yeah. Here, man, this is for your car. What is that? 20, 40, 60, 80, 110, 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks. There you go. No, it's for your car. Take it. Isn't it wonderful how God, isn't, isn't that it? That's it right there. That's it. A community marked by generosity. Round and round we go. Ten bucks, ten bucks. Ten bucks. The breaking of bread and prayer. They're committed to, they're committing themselves, they're devoting themselves to, right there, the breaking of bread and prayer. They're marked by a shared worship experience. This is huge. When I, when I first came to the vineyard in Columbus, I remember um, I had no frame of reference, no context for intimate worship and what that was all about. And I just remember uh, falling in love with Jesus with those people. And I remember just, you know, being, being there with people, whether it was in small group and, or in big group or wherever, just with vineyard people in Columbus. And I just remember singing simple songs to God. I remember sharing that and hearing others pe- other people's voices and how that shaped me. I remember singing, Jesus, Jesus, holy and anointed one, Jesus, your name is like honey on my lips, your spirit like water to my soul, your word is a lamp to my feet. Jesus, I love you. I love you. That's going to shape us. Worship shapes us. As we learn what it means to truly worship Jesus, we'll begin to live counter to the culture around us. When we say, with our lives, when it becomes more than just words on a screen that we sing on a Sunday morning, but the expressions of our hearts lived out for God on a nine-to-five daily basis, when we say, Jesus, we love you. We love you with our time. We love you with our money. We love you with our boyfriend or girlfriend. I love you by the way that I treat my spouse. I love you by the way that I parent my kids. I love you Jesus. Worship will shift the way. You worship as much of God as you know. How intimate is your worship? 
this morning. Worship will shift us. Worship will change us. We'll become, we'll become more like Jesus. We become more like the object of our affection. The more we give our heart to something, the more we become like it. As we worship Jesus, we become like him in our character. And in verse 43, we're not going to park here too long. Every, we we got to finish up. Every, um, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. The early church drew people because the early church was really clever at slick marketing strategies for bringing people to church. Amen? No. No, they were not. The early church drew people in because the early church saw miracles. You know, we're marketed to death out, outside. How many, how many advertisements do we see on a daily basis? Is it hundreds? Is it not thousands of advertising messages that we see on a daily basis come across our eyes? We're bombarded. We're marketed to death. And everyone else in society has technology. Everyone else in society has been marketed to death, but everyone else in society has not seen miracles. Did you know that? Miracles are not common out there. Miracles are not something that the apostles just did. Miracles are a gift that's given to the church. Miracles are our gift as a church from our loving Father to show the world that He's alive and that He's real and He's not just kept up, locked up in some book, but that He's alive and He's moving. That's what miracles are. And miracles are, giving, are given because when all seems like bad news around us, the Holy Spirit's church will preach and demonstrate the overwhelmingly good news. How much bad news is penetrating our headlines? You don't need me to stand up here and tell you about bad news. You see it every day. I was driving in listening to NPR and just listening to the headlines. You don't need me to tell you about the wars that we're experiencing right now. You don't, you don't need to tell me about the millions of people who live on less than a dollar a day. You don't, need, you don't need me to tell you about how Syria is, the people of Syria are being poured out like a drink offering right now. And people are looking for identity and looking for a place to call home, saying, who will welcome us? We're being driven out of our country. You don't need to tell you that. That there's bad news happening in our world today. You know. But as a people of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit's church, we're encouraged, we're challenged, we're called to be hope. We're called to be overwhelmingly good news in a bad news world. We're called to demonstrate, to speak it, to speak life, and demonstrate life. Speak hope and demonstrate hope. And I want to encourage you this morning that you're doing that. A woman in first service uh, said, hey, can I grab you for a minute? I want to tell you about something that happened yesterday. And it's like five minutes before I'm getting up uh, to teach. And so you have to be leery of those conversations. When it's like five minutes before I'm getting ready to teach and, and someone says, hey, can I grab you for a second? 
and then doesn't tell you what it's about, I'm like, oh crap, this is not going to be good. You're leaving the church or you're, I don't know. This, whenever it's a five minute before preaching discussion, it's never good, it seems like. But this one was. This one was really good. And she says, I was at this wedding shower yesterday and we were just hanging out, me and the girls. And then Jesus came up. <laughs> and she started sharing Jesus with one of her friends there. And her, friends at, her friend at this wedding shower is like, I don't have any hope. I need, I need Jesus. And, and Beth was like, okay, well, you know, let's pray with you. And so her friend just comes to put faith in Jesus yesterday there at a wedding shower. Right? It's good. And also, so, and I'm, another, okay, so healing on the streets yesterday. Um, Tom and the guys are down at healing on the streets, and this guy um, comes to them with a hurt foot. You know, he's got a lot of pain in his foot. And so uh, the team surrounds him in prayer, prays for his foot, gets up, checks it, good. No more pain in his foot. He's healed. And then uh, uh, they bring a friend of his down, and he says he, he wants to experience Jesus. He wants to put his faith in Jesus. Julius gives his life to Jesus right there in Market Square Park. You guys need to be encouraged, you guys and gals, that it's not at Vineyard Cleveland. This is the most thrilling thing about this ride for me, about this journey so far, and Sarah and I's time here, is that I, like the pressure is totally off of me. And that is a good thing. It's like, you guys are doing it. You need to be commended. You're bringing hope. It's coming. It's not coming through me. It's coming through your hearts and your hands. It's coming through you saying, yeah, I don't know what this is going to look like. I, I, I don't know if I should, if, if, how, how safe this is by praying for strangers or, or offering to pray for my family member or my coworker. But I'm, I'm willing to take a risk. I'm willing willing to pray. I'm willing to see if there's anyone, God, anyone at all that you've put in my life who that I can share uh, my faith with, that I can share you with Jesus. You guys are to be commended for that because it's, it's happening. You are doing it. Very few times will I preach a sermon so eloquently as this one and give a gospel call and people will say, yeah, I want to I give my life to Jesus. Now, does it happen? Yeah, it happens sometimes. But the majority of happenings that we're seeing are not here on a Sunday morning. They're out there and you're doing it. It's you all. And wherever your heart is at this morning, I want to encourage you because you're doing it. You're taking a step. You're, you, you might be all in and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm for this thing. I, I want to I bring life to the city. I, I want to share Jesus with everybody. I don't even care. And you're going everywhere. Or you may be, you may be someone else. You, you may be like, I don't know. You know, I'm still not sold on this vision of taking the church outside and giving the church away to the community. But you know what? I'm willing to try. Good on you for that. I commend you for that. Just in taking a step and saying, I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to risk. That's what the kingdom's all about. That's what the Holy Spirit's church looks like. It's fellowship and being willing to, re- uh, to, to risk everything. Being to, willing to risk your reputation at work. Being willing to risk your job. Being willing to risk your family. You're saying, oh, Jesus, you could have all, all of me. It's all yours. And lastly, favor. In verse 47... And we'll close with this one. Praising God. We read praising God. 
with, with what? Glad and sincere hearts. I love it. I love that one. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Favor with all people is to be enjoyed. You know, before persecution, there was enjoyment of favor. Before, before the church was persecuted, there was favor. And when Luke is writing about favor with all people, who is he talking about? The favor of all people. The favor of all people means here, not just the 3,000 that were added to their number on that day, not just little church, but the whole of Jerusalem was looking in on this thing and they were saying, dang, that's a good deal right there. That's a good thing that's happening right now. Look at how glad and sincere those people are. What makes them so happy? What is going on there? They're enjoying the favor. Before persecution, there was favor. People are glad. They have sincere hearts. And this is a marker of a spirit-filled church. Enjoying the favor of other people. (laughs) Your default, like mine, might be to view ourselves the opposite. Teaching myself here again. If, you know, often our opposite, our, our default is to not enjoy the favor of all people. We walk into situations and expect persecution or rejection or denial because we follow Jesus. But what I hear Luke saying in Acts is that Maybe our perspective needs shifted a little bit. Do you think that you carry the most brilliant person inside of your chest to be denied and rejected? Do you know that the scriptures say that when you come to put faith in Jesus and you give everything to him, that the countenance of your face changes that when you, and it's in the eyes, can't you see it in people's eyes when you, when you come into contact with someone who loves Jesus and who's, who God's smile is on and you look into, your, into their eyes and, you, and you're like, dang, something's happening there. What's unfolding in that person? You may even be like, man, I want what that person's got. What is that? What is going on? You can see it on your face. But so oftentimes we walk into the room and expect the opposite. We say that, gosh, dear old me, nothing will change. I follow Jesus. These people won't listen to me. Why, why am I even here in Cleveland? What? This job again? Man, that person's never going to change. Let, a, let alone God use me to change them, to help change that process, that addiction in their life. It's just another cloudy day in Cleveland. Dang it, our team's not going to lose the Eastern Conference Finals. We're not going to get to like so far and then fail. That's not the story of the city of Cleveland that we play out individually on a day-to-day basis. I'm not part of that culture, and Jesus is calling you to not be part of that culture. That's not how we'll rewrite the story of the city of Cleveland, by carrying on the tired story that's been passed down through generation and generation, from, from father to son to son to grandchild. It's, that's not who you are. It's an identity thing. Do you understand? It's an identity thing. You, you are not called to expect 
denial. You're not called to expect failure. You carry favor on your life. You carry something of the smile of God on, on, on your business dealings. Did you know that? That you carry something of God in the way that you think creatively about solutions at your workplace. You carry something of favor on your life. Favor. And so at its foundation, favor is something to be enjoyed, not despised. You're not to despise favor in your life. And you, you may be on the other side. You may be like, well, gosh, I wish I could use some favor about now. <laughs> All I know is want and lack. And Well, favor for you too if you claim Jesus. In Jesus' name. Favor for you. And the cool thing about um, enjoying favor. The cool thing is that when we learn to enjoy the favor that God's put on us to be, to simply relax and release the thing that we carry to those around us, when we enjoy it, when we learn to enjoy it and not despise it, we welcome more of it into our lives. We say, not, not like the Lord needs permission from us to do anything. I'm not saying that. But we're saying, yes, Lord, to more. When we enjoy the favor on our life, you don't have to feel bad. You don't have to feel guilty for the blessing that's on your life, is what I'm saying. Because God trusts you with it. He trusts you with it. And so when you say, yes, Lord, when you, when you say, yes, I enjoy that, that's good. That's good. That, and now, now you're not trying to manipulate or control the way that others view you. There's a lot of trying, like fathering trying to happen in our culture these days. You're not trying to control the way that other people view you. That would be manipulation. That's wrong. You're just saying, yes, I enjoy. I enjoy that people like hanging out with me, that they don't just tolerate me. Can you believe that about yourself this morning? That comes from proper identity, from, from learning to see yourself the way that the Father sees you. That he's not just tolerating you to spend time with you. That he enjoys being with you. He created you. He, sh- he shaped you in your mom's belly. He loves hanging. He knit you together like a little weaving. He wove you together in perfection and wonder. He loves who you are. God loves who you are. And so who are you to despise the favor that he's put on your life? When other, when other people are viewing you in favor, you say, yeah, I enjoy that. That's good. It's good. It's a good thing. Why don't you join me in standing?